together uh, his theme, just, it, it just happened, I think, naturally, with that which Terry Fraser spoke on this afternoon, the end of the world and the end of one's own life and how they wonderfully fit together. And as I said last night, I just happened to run across this last week a, a saying by C.S. Lewis who said exactly the same thing. He said what the end of one's own life is for each individual person, the second coming of Christ will be for all of humanity in that sense. And so they really are tied wonderfully together. And I know that uh, here in, in our church, uh, many have been looking forward because of just events in our own parish life uh, to Father Ted's talks. And uh, our family was uh, in his neck of the woods a couple weeks ago. We almost called him because we were in a terrible thunderstorm and <laughs> midnight in all the motels. There was no room in the inn. <laughs> but we uh, drove just far enough, and we, but we thought of him while we were there. And uh, it's really good to have you with us, Father it's Ted. good to be Thank here, Father. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be here for this conference and talking about thunderstorms in South Central Pennsylvania. I had a hard time getting here because I was supposed to leave on Sunday and because of thunderstorms that hit our area all the way to Chicago, uh, it was very hard for me to get out of South Central Pennsylvania to get into Chicago to make my connection to get to Anchorage. And I was so delighted on Monday when I was able to get on that plane to get to Chicago. And they said, Father, there is a flight that you can catch to get to Chicago, so we'll rush you through. So I got the ticket, and I'm scurrying up to the security check. And I set off the alarm <laughs> at the security check. And I take off my watch. I go through, go through again. I set it off. I make sure all the change is out of my pocket. Put everything in that little container. I go through again. I set it off again. They said, let us see your belt buckle. So they checked my belt buckle. They said, that should be okay. Do you, are you wearing a medallion? So I took off my cross, put it there, went through, set it off again. And then he ran the detector over me and it beeped on my arm. I have a plate with 14 pins in my arm. So all was well. And all of these officials who had come running to see who the suspicious person was said to me, that must be what it is. Is it close to the skin? I said, yes, it must be because it's right on the bone. And then I said the dumbest thing after they had sort of allayed all their fears and were ready to let me go. I said, that's funny that the metal detector in Harrisburg should catch it because I travel throughout the Middle East and a metal detector never caught it there. <laughs> More people came and started asking me questions. But I made it through and was able to get onto the plane to get to Chicago and gradually to Anchorage. So I'm very delighted to be here. Uh, in a way, what Father Mark says is true. I said, why don't we have, as the theme of the Institute this year, the cosmic and personal dimensions of eschatology? Well, I took what I consider to be the easier part for myself. And poor Terry has to look at the whole historical range of the various movements that have tried to explain when the end will come. And so the various prophetic figures, self-anointed prophetic figures, have come up through the centuries saying, this is when it will happen. It will be happen between such and such a date. So when you're predicting the apocalypse, there's a lot of guesswork involved. But none of you would call me a prophet if I said between August 1st in the year 2000 and August 1st in the year 2100, all of us will have to face our own death. You'd hardly consider me a prophet to say that. Unless, of course, the Lord returns first. Okay? Oh, yes, I'm limited in my time. I have to remember that. 
So we have to look at individual death as sort of a personalized reflection of what will happen cosmically with the eschaton, with the second coming of Christ. The culmination, the consummation of all of world history in the return of the Lord is reflected in our own personal death. And all of us, unless I said as the Lord, if the Lord returns first, we won't have to deal with it, but if he tarries and we die before his return, we will have to face our individual death. Terry, this afternoon, made a very interesting remark. He said, if you look at the various teachings regarding the second coming of Christ, the eschaton, the apocalypse, Orthodox have been infected by a lot of the popular theories and theologies afoot in the world. I dare say the same thing is true about the Orthodox understanding of the individual experience of death and what happens at death, what happens in the afterlife. If it is important, as indeed it is, to correct orthodox misperceptions because of our being infected by the spirit of this world about the second coming, we also must test our ideas about what happens at our individual death to make sure that the teaching to which we adhere, what we pass on to our children, what we pastors pass on to our parishioners is in accord with the teachings of the fathers. So, I am very happy to be here at this conference and to address this topic, but I want to give two caveats as we begin. The first is, whenever you talk about something like death, you have to be very careful. Careful because not one of us has experienced death and judgment and returned to tell about it. Not one of us in this room. I certainly have not. And we must be very careful of remarks, of stances, of positions that are articulated regarding personal eschatology, personal death. And we have to be very careful about what we claim to know. There's a humility in this kind of investigation that we must maintain. The fathers tell us very carefully, it is not wise to get into questions that are beyond our understanding because God has not seen fit to reveal all the details to us. In other words, we've got to be careful that we don't go too far and ascribe to ourselves a knowledge that we don't have. That's the first caveat. But the second caveat is more positive. We have to be confident in dealing with this question of death, that you and I who are baptized into Christ are part of he, him who conquered death. We're part of the victory of death. And so we can't come at these questions with fear, with trembling. The victory over death which Christ won is ours because we will be heir of the kingdom that he establishes because of our baptism into him. So we come to this question with a great deal of humility, not being able to say we know this for a certainty unless the Lord has revealed it to us explicitly. But we come with a certain amount of confidence to this question as well because he who is victorious over death is the Lord to whom we belong. So those are the two basic methodological points I want to make. As I was leaving to come here, I went to my office to get my notes. And I came to across one of my colleagues. And he said, gee, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Alaska to give a series of four talks. He said, about what? I said, death. He says, my, that's morbid. <laughs> and without thinking twice, I said, only if you think death is the end and only if you're afraid of it. 
And every now and then the Holy Spirit does inspire me to say things like that. And I really believe that that's the attitude that we have to bring to this. Death is serious business. Death is not a pretty affair. Death takes from us our loved ones. It takes from us our own lives. And yet we are not defeated by death. We will share in the ultimate victory over death. And we have to look at all these questions from that perspective. I remember when I first started graduate school, I had a professor uh, who was very much into modern Protestant theology. And he sort of set his sights on me. He wanted me to be one of his protégés. And he said, well, tell me, Ted, what do you want to study? I said, I'm very interested in getting to know more about the writings of the early church fathers, studying patristic theology. And he said to me, oh, they're just so obsessed with death. And I said, aren't we all? Is there not a human being, if they have a healthy psychology, that doesn't have some kind of questions that come from the fact that we are finite, and somehow we have to answer the question, what happens to me when the end of my life comes? I am not an infinite being that controls the universe, as much as we might like to delude ourselves into thinking that's the case. We have to come to terms with these questions. So, the central kerygma, the central proclamation of Christianity is really about death and the victory over death. No matter how lax an orthodox is, and isn't this the truth, when do they tend to show up during the church year? Holy Week, Great Week. When the drama of Christ's death and resurrection is represented to us, there is nothing like the Holy Saturday liturgy in the morning and the resurrection service in the evening. Even those whose spiritual sensibilities are hardened, something in that touches them. It strikes a chord with them. It plugs into their basic experience as a human being. And I have to tell you that Orthodox writers throughout the centuries, beginning with the Fathers, but coming down even to the present time, have written a lot about death. And I want to give you a few books, a few titles for you to add to your notes in case you'd like to check what I say against people who know far more about this topic than I do, and also to expand, perhaps, on some of the things that are presented here in the conference. The topic of death has not been ignored by any stretch of the imagination in modern Orthodox circles. Many of you are familiar with the writings of Father Seraphim Rose. He wrote a book called The Soul After Death, okay, which was published in 1980. Another very helpful book written to a large extent in reaction to what Father Rose said was a book by then Father Lev Pohalo. This book was titled The Soul, the Body, and Death. The Soul, the Body, and Death. It was published in 1981. How many of you have read either of these books, either one? I'm curious, how many of you have read Father Seraphim's book alone? And how many of you have read Father Lev's? Not many. Okay. Interesting. I just see 
I just see a few people who have read it back there. It's very important to look at both of these works to understand what some of the tension is, and I will do that uh, in my presentations, what some of the tensions are in discussing the orthodox understanding of death. But I want to recommend a very good book, more recent than these two, which if you can buy only one of them, this is the one to buy. This is by then Archimandrite, but now Metropolitan, Hierotios Vlachos, who is the Metropolitan of Nafpatos in Greece. And he wrote a book recently um, called Life After Death. Life After Death. Now, if you have been caught in some of the camp crossfire between those who have read Father Rose and those who have read Father Puhalo and are sort of firing at each other because they have different understandings, the book that resolves a lot of these tensions in a very solid theological and patristic way is this book by Hierotios Vlachos. And I recommend it extremely highly. So, these are three of the works that I'll be drawing from, as well as trying to give some of my own synthesis of the questions that these authors present. Understanding death is within the domain of Christianity. You know, one of the great things about teaching at a college, um, and even though it's a secular liberal arts college, I have a lot of students who come to me because they know I'm a priest. And I got this email a while back from a student who was not religious at all in her upbringing. She says, hello, Professor Polcini. As you can tell from my email address, I'm writing because I was wondering if you would be available for a meeting. And here's what she says. You'll love this. I know this sounds crazy, but over the past few weeks, I have been having a personal crisis of sorts regarding, now listen to what she lists. She lists three elements. I've been having a personal crisis of sorts regarding religion, death, and God. Okay, notice the order. So it shows that this is really a central issue in Christian self-understanding. And it is something that we have to look at carefully because, as I will explain, it affects so many aspects of our own theology. We have to be able to answer these questions because if we don't, like in so many other areas of the Christian life, the secular machinery of publishing takes over our territory. We've already lost a good deal of territory because the secular press has made death a hot-selling issue, hasn't it? Um, how many of you have heard of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? How many? Everyone's heard of her. When I was in seminary, it used to be a mantra to learn the stages of death and dying. Denial, anger, bargaining, you know? Uh, what is it? Uh, depression, acceptance, and death, and health. And uh, depression's acceptance and hope. It was like a mantra. We sort of looked at this as the ultimate expression of the teaching regarding death. In many ways, the secular culture had invaded the territory that was proper to Christianity. How many of you have read Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life? Okay. This book, written in 1975, became almost a sacred text for people. And the teaching, the traditional teaching of the church, was displaced by this kind of writing. At Dickinson College, where I teach, there are faculty summer groups. You study a certain issue. One of the faculty study groups a summer ago studied death as a process in American society. What did they use as the book of spiritual orientation toward death? The Tibetan book of the living and the dead. Okay? 
In other words, Christianity was kept almost completely out of the discussion. And a Buddhist understanding of death was introduced as the spiritual perspective to be considered. And finally, let me just notice that the Wall Street Journal had an article in February of this past year, and as you know, probably no newspaper gives a sense of the real spirituality of economic America than the Wall Street Journal. And this article states very clearly that boomers, baby boomers, begin to look beyond the good life to the good death. And what it describes is how people are trying to shape their own funeral services. What will happen to them at their death and what will happen to them as they were memorialized in funeral services and so forth. Giving themselves the false impression that yes, they have control even over what happens to them at death and in their funerals. Okay? So this is a part of modern American consciousness and unless we're able to answer the hard questions about death, our territory will be ceded very quickly to the secular press and the secular modes of analyzing this. And just as I was coming over here, I was reading the newspaper on the airplane. How many of you saw a special that was on television last night called Mysterious Ways? It was about the experience of death and dying, a full hour special. Um, also, uh, Beyond Chance, which is a show that's on television these days, deals with this kind of topic a lot. And the concern with the supernatural, dealing a lot with the incidence of death, is Touched by an Angel. Now, most of you have heard of Touched by an Angel. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about these programs. I'm just saying the secular machinery of our culture will take over if we don't stand our ground. Okay. Why death is important <clears throat> as a theological category is that it affects so much of orthodox theology in general. The first area of theology that we have to look at before we can really properly understand death from the orthodox perspective is orthodox anthropology. What that means is, how does the orthodox faith understand the human being? You cannot understand what happens to the human being at death unless you first have a clear understanding of what orthodox theology teaches about the human being. How many of you have heard this statement? Complete this statement for me. The purpose of religion is to save your soul. You've all been indoctrinated this way, and it's erroneous. It's heretical. That is the first misconception we have to get over. The, pers the personal faith that we have in God, the purpose of salvation is not to save your soul, but to save your entire person. God is interested in saving us as human beings in total, not just souls. Okay? In technical language, Human beings, in orthodox understanding, are psychophysical unities. Each one of us is an inextricable union of body and soul together. The human being is not just a soul encased in a body. And despite what modern culture teaches about the obsession with the body, we're not just not a body that has some kind of spiritual faculty. We are body and soul inextricably linked. This is the way we're created. And this basic understanding of the human being is derived fully from the biblical sense of human beings found both in the Old and New Testaments. And this is where I want to make a very important point. In the Old Testament, in ancient Israel, 
Human beings were seen as basically animated bodies. The biblical view is God shaped Adam, okay, the human being, and breathed into Adam the breath of life, the nephesh. You can see how ancients thought this, by the way, because if you were with someone who had died, what did you see? You saw the person there, and as they breathed their last, the idea was that the nephesh, the breath of life which God had breathed into the body to animate it, had passed out of the body, and that's what caused the body to be dead. Okay? Now this view of the human being as a body animated was later countered by a more Greek idea, where if the Hebrews thought of human beings as animated bodies, the Greeks tended to see human beings as incarnated spirits. You see the difference? The Hebrew conception was human beings are above all else an animated body. The Greek view was what we are are incarnated spirits. We're spirits that happen to be housed in a body. Now this different emphasis has had an impact on the way Christians think about the human person, about death. I think that we are way too influenced in many ways by dualism, okay? Now, you're going to see when I get up my soapbox about this in a little while, but just keep this note in mind, that we have adopted a far too Hellenic and Hellenistic view of the human being as somehow a spirit housed, and it's a very small step from that for saying a spirit imprisoned in a body. This is not the biblical view. The biblical view is this inextricable union of body and soul. This Greek philosophical dualism fed into our theology in many ways, and it's always been fought by the fathers, but on a popular level, it's won in many ways. Uh, I would go to funeral homes all the time and hear people say, ah, oh, it's so good to see that they're finally liberated from this life, liberated from the body, set free. This is a more Greek understanding, a platonic understanding of death and is not one totally in line with what the biblical teaching is concerning the human person. Because of the importation of philosophy as a method and a language of theology, philosophy has given us this impression. This is the first thing I want to underscore is something that we have to look at and challenge. Okay, so what is the soul? And this is important to understand if we're going to talk about death and its basic definition is what? The separation of body and soul. So what are we talking about when we're talking about the separation of the soul from the body? The body is complex, made of many elements. When the body dies, it disintegrates and the elements pass back into the earth. We know that we're made of many elements because of the remains that are left after the body enters into a process of natural decay. The soul, however, is simple. It is not made up of various elements. But the soul has various capacities, and these are important to understand. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, my grandmother died. This was really the first person who had died in my life that I knew very well and loved very deeply and saw day to day and knew her in, you know, probably more intimately than I knew anyone else because I'd spent so much time in her presence. And I remember going to the funeral home and seeing her body there and saying, it looks like her, but now what is missing? 
It was obviously not her. All right? The psychophysical unity of body and soul had been disrupted. What does the soul impart to the body? It's one thing to say it enlivens the body, but how? The basic thing is, But the soul gives its body its appetites, the need to eat, the need to sleep, the need to drink, sexual impulse. I mean, when's the last time you saw a corpse with any of those needs? Obviously, when the soul departs from the body, those appetites go with the soul. Okay? The powers of intellect are also part of the soul, the capacity of the soul. The ability to think, to abstract, to form logical thoughts. These are abilities that are given to a human person by virtue of the indwelling of the soul in the body. When the soul departs the body, it's very rarely, if ever, that you've seen a corpse think. But the part, if I can put it that way, the aspect, the power of the soul that is of most concern to most of the fathers of the church is that aspect of the soul known as noose. And I will say a little bit about this. So the soul is an enlivening presence that permeates the entire body. At death, when the soul separates from the body, the appetites cease, the intellect that we have, the way we think about things, ceases. Now please, don't understand me to say that the soul doesn't have any consciousness. I'm not saying that. You got that? But the intellect as we presently know it ceases and the noose, this so-called highest or purest part of the soul, is what the fathers are most concerned with in talking about the soul after death. Now what is this noose? Um, how many, you know, for years whenever I would read biblical texts, I would always be confused by talking about body, soul, and spirit. And you know, there's no consistency among the various writers who use those terms. Body and spirit are sometimes given as the two aspects of human beings. Okay? Body, soul, and spirit is a way of talking about the body, the soul having these powers of intellect and appetite, and the noose as being the highest part of the universe and the spirit, that part which connects us to perception of the divine. Why are you here? Why are you a church person? Why do you pray? Why are you spiritually seeking? The fathers say it's easy to explain this. There is an aspect of your soul that perceives something beyond the material world, more than appetites and more than intellect. There's something in every human being that perceives somehow that there's a transcendent reality and that we want to connect with that. There's something beyond just what we can shape and experience through our senses. So, the noose then is what the fathers call the eye of the soul. Sometimes they call it even the chariot of the soul because as the noose is trained in the Christian life, it can either lead the soul upward, so to speak, to the things of God, or it can weigh the soul down by enmeshing the soul in the things of the material world. All right? Now, this is important to keep in mind because when we talk about what we can do to prepare for a good death and what it is that the church is concerned to do for us after the separation of soul from body, it is the noose which is the focus of their attention. 
And you will see in a lot of writings about the perception of the soul after death that the soul has a noetic awareness. A noetic awareness. What that means is the snooze continues to perceive. Now, why do the fathers say that the appetite or the intellect as we presently know it don't continue to exist and function? It's simply because the soul needs the body to interact with the world. An intellect as we know it, and appetites as we know it, mental activity as we know it, and appetites as we know it, are dependent on the soul being in the body. But when the soul passes out of the body, it still has awareness. And that awareness is noetic awareness. The awareness of the spirit, of the noose. Of the soul. After the soul is separated from the body, it's very interesting that this term noetic awareness often comes up. Okay? Now, one point here to make. Do not make this an equation. Very often when we read biblical texts, and we talk about, the biblical texts talk about pitting the spirit against the flesh. Throughout Christian history, people have read those texts as really referring to the soul pitted against the body. Okay? Now, that's what's led to the kind of dualism that is platonic or Gnostic in its orientation rather than what the biblical texts truly say. How many of you have copies of the Bible with you, um, with the New Testament? If you have one, uh, look up Galatians. Go to uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5. And I just want to look at one such text as an example of this. Galatians, chapter 5, verse 13. Verse 13. Uh, who would like to read for me? Anyone who would? Well, I better do it because of the microphone, right? Okay. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts, after, lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, many people throughout Christian history have read this warfare of spirit versus flesh as a dualism, an antagonism of soul versus body. This is not what St. Paul is saying, okay? For him, the spirit are those things that the later fathers would talk about, the desires of the noose, the elevated things. The flesh are those impulses of the human being that drag us down into enmeshment in the material, physical world of passions, okay? But you see, if you misinterpret these biblical injunctions of spirit versus flesh as being the antagonism of soul versus body, 
you get a kind of dualism that's been very destructive of a proper understanding of anthropology and of death, what happens at death. Okay? So, uh, just to continue with this passage, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. I tend to use this as my checklist when I go to confession. It works very well. Just as I told you before in times past, and those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So you see that the Spirit and the flesh are the two impulses, the two directions in which the noose can turn. So this is a, an important distinction between soul versus body on the one hand and spirit versus flesh on the other. Do not equate them. What does all this lead up to? That death for the orthodox is always an unnatural, in the proper sense of the word, an unnatural occurrence. It flies in the face of the divine plan for human beings. It contradicts the true end, the true telos, the true goal for which human beings are created. And for that reason, it is something that God had to deal with for the sake of our salvation. In short, death is seen as unnatural because it's a disruption of personhood. Because persons are body and soul together, intrinsically linked. If personhood is disrupted, then you have uh, an unnatural situation which God, by his grace, had to remedy. What also does this lead to? It also leads to something that you th see throughout the services of the Orthodox Church and in the writings of the Fathers concerning death. Death is a traumatic event in the sense that as the soul leaves the body, it recognizes that it is doing something that it is not meant to do, really. That the soul is meant to be housed in the body, and that death, when soul separates from body, a trauma of sorts occurs. The church, ever solicitous for the welfare of her people in life and death, is there to ease the transition from life into death because of the parting of the soul from the body. And the prayers of the church and the various things, as we'll see in later talks, we do these things because this transition can be mollified. Can, the person can be comforted in this otherwise traumatic uh, occurrence of death. Okay. Let me turn now to something that's gotten a lot of press and most of you have heard about, and that's near-death experiences. All right? Uh, Father Seraphim Rose, in his book, talks about near-death experiences, and he has the attitude that even though one must be wary of these things, they reveal something very positive about the continuation of life after death. Now, most of you have heard about these things, um, and I want to read you just one example of a near-death experience, and all the others I've read are basically variations on this theme. Okay? On a hospital bed, a man lies in the throes of dying. He hears his doctor pronounce him dead. He then hears a buzzing sound and feels himself rushing through a long, dark tunnel. Now, from a distance, he looks down at his own body and sees the doctor trying to revive it. He becomes aware that he is in a body different from the one on the bed. Now he sees the spirits of dead relatives and friends coming to welcome him. 
Then a radiant being of light appears to him. Without speaking, the being lovingly asks how he has lived his life and helps him to evaluate it by showing him a replay of key experiences. Next, he comes to a border that seems to be the line between earthly life and the afterlife. He now realizes he has to go back. His time to die has not yet arrived. He is engulfed by deep feelings of love and joy and resists returning to earth. But he does return somehow and finds himself back in his physical body. Later on, released from the hospital, he learns not to talk about the experience. It is hard to describe, and people show negative reactions to such talk. Still, his life is not the same as before. He is happier and more loving, and he no longer fears dying. Now, all of you have heard of this kind of experience, right? This near-death experience. It happens when clinical death, the stopping of breathing, the stopping of heartbeat happens, and it sometimes happens in life-threatening situations. Uh, in a book by Dr. Kenneth Ring, he pinpoints all the elements of these near-death experiences. They sometimes differ in sequence, they differ in patterns, but basically they're all there. The ironic thing is that people who have these near-death experiences and report them come from all kinds of different religious backgrounds. Some of them are even agnostics and atheists. Okay? So this is what has led um, psychologists to study these phenomena. Now, these are really sort of unsettling in a number of ways, and it has led people who have done an orthodox analysis of death to look at these near-death experiences. One more aspect of sort of the clinical data that has led orthodox theologians to examine this topic. Not only do you have these near-death experiences, NDEs, You also have a number of data, not only from clinical sources, but also from the writings of the saints, all right? Deathbed visions. When people are at the point of death, there seems to be a perception of a spiritual reality beyond what they're experiencing in the body, okay? Now, let me just read you an example of that, one of those. A 70-year-old patient had seen her deceased husband several times, and then she predicted her own death. She said that her husband had appeared in the window and motioned to her to come out of the house. The reason for his visits was to have her join him. Her daughter and other relatives were present when she predicted her death, laid out her burial clothes, laid down um, on her bed all of the things she had prepared for her funeral, she herself lay down and died one hour later. She seemed calmed, resigned to death, and in fact wanted to die. Before she saw her husband, she didn't speak about imminent death. Her doctor was so surprised by her sudden death, for which there was no sufficient medical reason, that he checked if she had poisoned herself. He found neither signs of poisoning nor any such drugs in the house. As a priest attending to people on their deathbed, I myself have had experiences like this, where people who are on the verge of death clearly perceive something beyond the present experience. I had a very odd experience with my own uncle's uh, death. My uncle 
Uh, my godfather, as a matter of fact, was my father's brother, very close to my father. And I went to see him in the hospital. And as I was talking to him, he seemed to be perfectly clear. And he kept calling me by my father's name. And I says, Uncle Fats, because it was his nickname, Uncle Fats. It's not, it's Ted. He says, but your father's been here all day. My father had died before. And sure enough, he died the next day. Now, was it just a hallucination? Who knows? All right? Now, I want to give this, these two kinds of experiences to show what the various writers in orthodox circles have done to explain these rather heartening experiences that people have that seem to point very clearly to the continuation of consciousness and, uh, and life after death. What's the first reaction that people have? Well, uh, Father Lazar, now Arch, uh, Archbishop Lazar Puhalo, Father Lev Puhalo, says that these are demonic illusions. He sees these things as demonic and not as real at all. All right? Now, I'm not going to agree completely with his stance, but let me lay it out to you as fairly as I can. Here's his way of thinking. He says, according to Orthodox anthropology, the reason we're able to see, the reason we're able to hear, the reason we're able to fear ourselves in the presence of other people is because the soul is in the body. Okay? If the soul were really separated from the body, the soul would not be able to see things or hear things or report the things, the kind of sensual images and data that people in near-death experiences seem to talk about. So, according to Archbishop Lazar, these are something that are not to be taken seriously and to be rejected completely. He says this, the point is certainly obvious. The noose, here we go, the noose, the soul's chief faculty of spiritual awareness must remain inside the body, the temple of God, in order to be delivered from the wiles of the demons and their delusions and fantasies. The revelations with the saints received, they received within, in the kingdom of God, not without, in the realm of demons. So he says, as soon as the spirit separates from the body, it is subject to demonic assault and for the kind of false impressions that these near-death experiences report. For the kingdom of God and the vision, therefore, of that kingdom is within. All these other things, out-of-the-body experiences, psychic phenomena, astral projection, and so forth, all have as their chief step the exit of the mind from the body, where they are subject to diverse demonic fantasies. As we have already said, the soul, or mind, the meaning here is the same, cannot exit the body, but the imagination and emotions can be projected outward and are easily subject to demonic influences which are then brought into the mind. Okay, so he has a basically negative approach to this. Father Seraphim Rose, on the other hand, was not quite so negative. He says there's something real here, something that is perceived at the point of death where the crossing of a border between strictly material reality and the spiritual reality is something that's being experienced by the person at that point. And how does one adjudicate between these two positions? Uh, Archbishop Lazar Puhalo's position and Father Seraphim Rose. Well, thank goodness we have Metropolitan Hierotheos, who in his great theological mind and his patristic sensibility has said some very interesting things. And he finds uh, some strength um, in these 
near-death experiences because they are reflected in hagiography, the writings concerning the saints. Let me just read to you a section from his book where he deals with this. How do you explain near-death experiences and these deathbed visions? How are they to be understood from an orthodox point of view? He says this. During my pastoral service, I have heard many people tell of similar incidents. Sometimes they were their own experiences during serious illnesses, and at other times they were testimonies of their own people whom they were watching. As a youngster, I was witness to an incident in which a woman approaching the end of her life when her soul was leaving her body uttered a groan and at the same time was shaking her fist as if she were chastising someone and chasing them away. One can hear about such events on the Holy Mountain. Various fathers of Mount Athos have told me incidents from the final moments of holy and sinful monks. Let me give a personal witness from the illness of my ever-memorable Gerondas, Metropolitan Kalinikos of Edessa, which bears on the subject of this chapter. After an operation to remove a brain tumor, there was a hemorrhage, and he fell into a deep coma. The doctors attending him said that he was on the border of life and death. His heart was functioning, but he was breathing with a mechanical apparatus. If the inflow of air were to stop, he would die. Everything was probable, to remain a vegetable, to die, or to recover consciousness. When he recovered consciousness after a few days, he weepingly and with great stress recounted a dreadful incident. He said that it was not a dream, but a real event. He was aware that this was a reality. He saw himself outside his body, his soul was watching his body, which lay on his bed, and was also watching all of us who felt pity and were preparing for a funeral. Indeed, he pointed out one particular nurse among the many was there, and he was measuring him for the coffin. He didn't like that too much, but he knew what it was, it was happening. He understood that his soul had gone out of his body, and indeed he said that at that hour he himself was saying the funeral prayer for the dead to himself. He also had other such experiences, but the one which I just mentioned was the most expressive and relative to the topic we are discussing. I do not actually know whether it was an out-of-the-body experience or an experience close to death. The fact is that it was an unfamiliar state. Okay? And this is the way he sort of arrives at some kind of coalescence, some kind of consonance between these views. Something happens at death where the soul enters a different state of existence. If the proper abode of the soul is in the body, if it is through the body that the soul perceives the world, if it is through the body that the soul sees and hears and interacts with the material world, if it is because of its dwelling in the body that the soul is able to exercise its mental faculties, when the soul is separated from the body, there is still a consciousness that is a different state of existence. Okay? And these incidences from clinical data and from the lives of the saints seem to indicate clearly that there is some continuation of consciousness, a noetic awareness that continues. Um, let me just leave one, say one last remark before um, I conclude this section of the talk and ask you for questions. If you look at some of the medical data, there are people who say these are just hallucinations. Near the time of death, 
the body is really sort of short-circuiting in a lot of ways. Uh, the normal functioning of synapses, the normal metabolic functions are in a different state, an altered state of some sort, and these are hallucinatory things of a person who is undergoing these chemical changes, biochemical changes in the body. But that does not explain one thing about these. Why, if they're just hallucinations, if you had hallucinations and I had hallucinations, our respective hallucinations would be determined by our life experiences, okay? For instance, I predict I have nightmares about black bears after I leave Alaska. <laughs> I would not have had those nightmares if I had not come here, okay? But the fact is, if you look at these near-death experiences and deathbed visions, you see that across cultures, in different religious traditions, the farthest separated corners of the world, the 11 elements that I was discussing, as outlined by one of those doctors, is present in virtually all of them, okay? So, the idea that this is just an hallucination doesn't really explain this common material that you find cross-culturally and cross-religiously. It seems that there might be some spiritual reality that is perceived here, and when people describe these things, uh, that's why you have these common elements in these descriptions, okay? So, the basic points I want to make in this first part of the talk this evening, and we'll come back for the second after a short break, is that the basic, the foundation of understanding death from an orthodox perspective is understanding the human being correctly. And the understanding of the human being correctly is that we are psychophysical unities. We are created as body and soul together. All right? Death violates this creation of the person as God wanted it to exist. And that means that death is an unnatural kind of development that God had to address because it violated his very purpose and created human beings as who they are. We have to keep in mind that in our ideas of death and of Christianity, that the purpose of the faith is to save us whole, completely, body and soul together. The purpose of salvation is to save you, save your body, save your soul, not just your soul. And so these kind of dualistic, Gnostic, Platonic, more philosophical than theological understandings of the human being, once and for all have to be put aside so that we can understand why the church teaches what it does about death, how it prepares us for death, what it says happens after death, and why it conducts the various stages of preparing someone for death and praying for them afterwards. That's what we'll continue uh, in the next three talks. Uh, just to give you a snapshot of these next three talks, we'll continue uh, to look at some of the indications of what the church believes happens to the soul in separation from the body at the moment of death. And then we're going to look at the larger cosmic effects of death and why God had to actually step in in the economy of salvation, in the great sort of plan of salvation that God enacted in the world. Why, as that professor of mine at Notre Dame said, death was the enemy. And death is what had to be focused on as the foe to be conquered. Why is that in a larger theological sense? And it doesn't just have to do with human beings. That's the point we'll see. So let me stop at this point. Um, do we want to take questions, some questions now, and then break for coffee? Why don't we break it? Okay, why don't you, if you have questions, you know, sort of formulate them in your mind, have some coffee. We'll start the second part tonight with questions, and I'll conclude my talk for this evening. Of course.